If you have your Bibles, I pray you do open those to the book of Luke chapter 14. And we're going to be starting in verse 1. Uh, still walking through our time in the book of Luke. And we've made it this far. The Lord will be with us as we continue on. I'm going to read the first six verses uh, to, to get us started today. It says, One Sabbath day, Jesus went to eat dinner in the home of a leader of the Pharisees, and the people were watching him closely. There was a man there whose arms and legs were swollen. And Jesus asked the Pharisees and experts in religious law, is it permitted in the law to heal people on the Sabbath day or not? And when they refused to answer, Jesus touched the sick man and healed him and sent him away. Then he turned to them and said, which of you doesn't work on the Sabbath? If your son or your cow falls into a pit, don't you rush to get him out? Again, they could not answer. But let's bless the word as we as we read it this morning. Father, thank you for your word. I, I stand in your pulpit. Lord God, ready to communicate to your people. And I need you so much. I, I, I thank you that you'll take the, the poverty of my remarks and translate it to each heart. I thank you that you use it to build us up and strengthen us in our faith today as we walk through this life with you in Jesus name. Amen. So we have here in Luke 14, Jesus has been invited to a dinner party at the home of one of the leading Pharisees. And we've talked about this before, but I think it bears mentioning again. Aren't you glad that he still went to eat with the Pharisees? Right. They were dry. They were crusty. They weren't nice to him. They didn't they, they didn't want good from him. He could have just as easily said, you know what? Y'all should know better. I'm just going to leave y'all alone. But he didn't. He still accepted their invitation, still came to dinner, even knowing how their heart was towards him at the time. And then these next 24 verses that you see in Luke 14, which we won't get through the 24 of them today, is Jesus teaching and ministering at this same dinner, at this same table, uh, at the home of one of the leading Pharisees. Now, he wasn't even just a Pharisee. He was one of the big bosses in the Pharisees. And so this was this was a big deal. And it says Jesus is there uh, reclined at the table and they were watching him closely now, the reason they were watching him closely wasn't so, you know, well, let, let me see what I can glean from him. Let me see what I can learn from him. It wasn't that. What it was is this was the Sabbath meal. This is the day of rest. And they were forbidden from working on the Sabbath. And then it just so happens that at the table or in the room, there's a man with dropsy or with severe swelling of his limbs, of his arms and his legs, just water retention that has him swollen up really big. And so he's there in the room and maybe he just happened to be there. Maybe, maybe he just made his way in. We, we don't know if he just happened to be there, then this story is pretty cool. Uh, but maybe he was brought there specifically by the Pharisees to see what Jesus would do to try to trap Jesus on the Sabbath day. And if that's the case, that if it was a trap, he was brought there by the Pharisees as a means to trap Jesus to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. Then this story is really awesome. It goes from cool to just completely awesome because, again, they're they're wanting to see if he would break the rules, their rule to heal on the Sabbath. 
Interesting part, this man would have been, because of his condition, labeled unclean. He shouldn't have been amongst the Pharisees. But if it was a trap, they brought him in there, making them breaking their own rule to see if Jesus would break the rule. And we know he had done that before. He healed on the Sabbath before. And he even told them that the Son of Man, speaking of himself, is Lord even over the Sabbath. And we know that he said that the Sabbath, this day of rest, was made for the man and not man made for the Sabbath. But yet this trap lays there trying to get him to do one of two things. Either one they would be able to condemn him for. If he heals the man, then he broke the Sabbath and he worked on the Sabbath. If he doesn't heal the man, then well, you're not really compassionate. You don't really care. You don't love this man. So you see the trap there seems pretty solid, pretty solid trap, except he's also the son of God and he's about to own their trap. So let's give them the benefit of the doubt. Maybe they didn't set this up. Maybe they didn't, but it feels like they probably did. It feels a little shady uh, when you look at it and think about it like that. But even if they didn't, even if they didn't set it up, they noticed the situation and they were hoping that he would do something that they would be able to condemn him for uh, just waiting for him to mess up. And what a tough spot for your heart to be in where you're the sin police, where, where you're trying to catch somebody else doing wrong. I've never understood why people get uh, their jollies out of that. Be like, oh, look, an imperfect person doing something that's imperfect. Aha! I've caught you. Yes, you did. They were probably also breathing. Did you catch them breathing? That you're going to do things that you shouldn't do. Welcome to the world. But that that was their aim was to catch people doing something wrong. And why would they do that? What 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 benefit is there in that? What what benefit do we get when we walk in that and what their attempt was, especially with him, but even with anybody else, was to discredit them. And now you're not competition for me. You're below me, which means I'm above you and I feel better about what I'm doing. Right. It makes me feel better. It's a bully type attitude. Do you remember ever getting bullied at school like you come home and it was usually my grandmother would always say this like well they were making fun of my shoes and she would say well sweetie it's just because they want some shoes like that and then you look at your shoes and you're like I don't think that's what it is I really do that doesn't it sounds good but I don't think that's what it is so why are the bullies bullying it's because they're insecure. They are insecure about who they are and what they have. And so they're trying to forcefully put someone underneath them so they don't have to feel that. So then they can say, well, at least I'm not as bad as you. At least I'm doing better than you. At least I have better than you. And then you picture Jesus in this situation. He's invited to this table by a bunch of bullies who were plotting against him, either j just partially in their heart or completely with a whole thing staged. And he's reclined at the table. You remember they would just kind of recline at the table and he's seeing all of it. And somehow it being the savior of the world is still able to love them and be ready to do good in that situation. 
right? I don't think that would be our first reflex if we're reclined at the table and then we see this group who has set themselves in opposition to us and now they've got this trap laid for us, which is really out there. We can see it, you know, we're not gonna go, I love y'all, I really want you to be better. No, right? Our first response would be like, you sneaky little snake. I have seen this, you watch what's about to happen. Here we go, right? It just shows you how different he is than us and to remind us that he didn't come here because we were good. He came here because we couldn't be good on our own. And so Jesus is here reclined at the table. He sees the trap. He sees the man with dropsy. He's all swollen up. And then Jesus takes their trap and begins to turn it on them. And so he asks, asks them a question. He says, is it permitted in the law to heal people on the Sabbath day or not? Is it permitted in the law to heal people on the Sabbath day or not? Now, you've heard the proverb about digging a hole for your enemy, you know, a trap for them. And then you fall in the hole yourself. That's what's happening right here. This is that. Because remember what they were trying to get Jesus to do, either heal the man and break the rule or not heal the man and not be compassionate. So either a rule breaker or somebody who's not compassionate. And then he puts it on them. He completely flips it. He's like, what do y'all say? What do you say about it? And it says what? They refused to answer. Why? Because there's no good answer. There's no good answer to that question. He turned it on them because then there, well, if we tell him that it is okay, then he's going to heal the man and, and it'll be permitted even though we've already said it's against the law. And if we tell him no, then we're the ones withholding compassion publicly from this man. So trapped, completely removed from Jesus, clamped down onto them. And then verse 4b, Jesus asked that question. He said, when they refused to answer, Jesus touched the sick man and healed him and sent him away. One touch and he healed him. And then he sent him away. So I, I didn't even write this in my notes, but I was, as I was praying over this this morning, I, I saw it this way. You can have a man in a room full of religious people, man or woman, you have a person in a room full of religious people, dry and, and crusty, and he, he's unclean in his mind and, and in their mind. He's not supposed to be there. He feels already unaccepted, but he's the one that Jesus touches. He's the one that Jesus ministers to health and wholeness and wellness. So if you're ever sitting in a room thinking, I deserve to be here the least, ask him to touch you because he will. And the rest of them got something very different. Notice Jesus touched the man, healed him and then said, all right, now you need to leave because you really don't need to be here for what's going to happen next. Said he sent him away. He didn't say, you know, go, go, go your way in, in peace. Like he sent somebody away. He said he sent him away after he healed him. And then he turned to the Pharisees. Boom, boom, boom. So he's already flipped the trap. He healed the man. He sent the man away. And now he's like, now let's talk about this. Let's talk about this. Right. Look, look what he say. Look what he says to them in verse Five. He turned to them and said, which of you doesn't work on the Sabbath? If your son or your cow falls into a pit, don't you rush to get him out? 
Which one of you doesn't work on the Sabbath if it's something that's important to you? If it's something that matters to you, he said, you work on the Sabbath. You do this when it's something that matters to you. Why didn't this man matter to you? So he's forgetting talking about the rules. He's, he's negating talking about the healing. He's going straight to their heart. And all of a sudden, the sin police are stone quiet. And it says again, they could not answer. Why? Because he had them wrapped up in the truth. They spent their time focusing on the weaknesses, the flaws, the sins, the issues of others compared to their own selective obedience. I'm going to compare the things you've done wrong to the things I remember that I've done right. And then they forget that all of those others that they're comparing themselves to are people too. People with souls, living people. But they've, they, they've turned them into just another thing in their life. And it dehumanizes people. It depersons people. It does, they, they were telling everybody else what was wrong with them and giving grace to themselves. That's what Jesus is calling them out on. He's like, the same thing you were about to be mad at me for doing, you do it too when it matters to you and when it's important to you. Reminds me when he told them, you know, you're, you're, you're criticizing the little speck of dust in your brother's eye and you have a huge log sticking out of your own eye. See, the heart of the, uh, the, the, this Pharisee's heart will cause you to be enamored by your own obedience. And think that you're you're the best that you're doing the best of everybody. They were so much like that, that they're literally trying to find fault with the son of God, the son of God who came down to reveal sin, not even to condemn it, but to reveal it and save us out of it. And their thought on the whole situation is "Nah, I'm good. I've got this already. I've got everything in my life tied up. I'm good. Thanks. But no, thanks having no idea how far off they really were, right? Let it never be said of us that, <laughs> that we see life that way because we know that we need his grace. We have to know that. Scripture says we come boldly before the throne of his grace, knowing that we need it and knowing it's grace that we also don't deserve it. This isn't a paycheck that I've earned. This is grace that I didn't Deserve And Jesus points out, again, crushes them with what he points out, that they would be quick to work on the Sabbath if someone or something that belonged to them was in danger or at risk. He said, if this was your son or this was your cow. Now, listen, one weird thing about this little translation right here. Some of the translations, instead of saying son, say donkey. So I don't know about that. Like if the manuscripts are a little bit different there, you know, he could have said son, he could have said donkey. I don't know. Maybe your son was being a donkey. I don't know. But he said, if it was your son, your donkey, your cow falls into a pit, you're going to rush to get them out. You're going to do this when it matters to you. And again, why doesn't this man matter to you? The Pharisees wanted Jesus to heal the man, but not so the man would be healed, but instead so they would have something to throw back at him. 
didn't care about the man. They didn't care about the fact that he had been afflicted with this. They didn't care that he could be made well. That wasn't why they had him there. And that's the evidence of the heart that we're talking about. They wanted him there. They wanted him to be healed, but not out of love and mercy, but so they could win an argument. They had a theology, a belief system that elevated them and did nothing for the weak among them, for the others among them. And any religion, any system of belief that elevates you is false. It's false. Any religion that lessens, lowers your love for God or your love for others is false. And that's what he's pointing out to them. They had been so consumed with competition and debates and discussions that they had lost their priorities. What are the priorities? Love God, glorify him and love your neighbor as yourself. Love God and then love the neighbor that he's created in his image. We have to remember and never forget the priority that God places on other people in our lives. The Pharisees were diminishing that and Jesus came to restore that right vision and perspective. He places a high priority on people in our lives. Remember what, what it says in John three sixteen. God so loved the world that he gave Jesus. That's a high priority. And then Jesus gets here, starts doing Jesus things, kingdom things, and the religious people started to feel convicted. They started to feel like, wait a second, we were supposed to be at the top of the heap. We're not, we're not feeling like that. So then they, they, they come out against him and they do what we do when somebody confronts us about something. The first thing we want to say is, well, I mean, you, you, you've messed up, right? You're not perfect, right? That's what we do. Except when they did it to Jesus, well, I mean, you're not perfect. Except all of heaven resounded and said, yeah, he is. This one is. That doesn't work with him. And now listen, I, I'm a firm believer that we should live faithfully and obediently to the scripture with the ability uh, that he's graciously given us by faith, right? So we hold to truth. There is truth and we hold to it. And I realize that in that process, we can become self-centered. We can stop looking at him and we can get focused on ourselves. And the way I put it is we should stay in love with him instead of falling in love with ourselves just because we started to look like him. When he, when he takes my life and changes it and begins to restore it and sanctify me, things get better. And I can real quick think, I'm doing good. And I have to remember, I'm, if he wasn't with me, I wouldn't be doing good. I, that I don't get distracted and become self-centered from loving God and loving my neighbor because I can start to think that life revolves around me. And that's what he focuses on next in verse, starting in verse seven. Let's read it. Seven through eleven. He said you, you can start doing well and then you start to think of yourself as better than you actually are. But he says in verse seven or it says in verse seven, when Jesus noticed that all who had come to the dinner were trying to sit in the seats of honor near the head of the table, he gave them this advice. He said, when you're invited to a wedding feast, 
Don't sit in the seat of honor. What if someone who is more distinguished than you has also been invited? The host will come and say, give this person your seat. Then you'll be embarrassed and you'll have to take whatever seat is left at the foot of the table. Instead, take the lowest seat at the foot of the table. Then when your host sees you, he'll come and say, friend, we have a better place for you. Then you will be honored in front of all the other guests. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, but those who humble themselves will be exalted. So it said at the beginning of this little passage that they invited him and everybody was watching him closely. Well, it turns out Jesus is watching them right back and he's doing a better job at paying attention. And he says, I, I, I saw y'all trying to get all the good seats at the table. Let me give you some advice. And what he meant was for them, the way these dinners would be set up, the table, as I understand it, was in a U shape. And the host would sit at the top of the U in the middle and then on his right hand and on his left. Remember they talk, who's going to sit on your right hand and on your left hand in the kingdom? These are positions of honor at the table. And the further down the table you got, the less honorable the position was. And probably just because you couldn't hear the conversation as well. You were going to be less involved. It's like sitting at the kids table instead of at the adult table. Right. And we don't really put a lot of stock in where you sit at the table. If we go to lunch, it doesn't really matter where people sit. Right. We, we don't have that. The things we do for positions of honor have more to do with with what we wear, or what we drive or where we live or all the things that we do. Right. That's where we put emphasis on. And his advice to them when they're trying to make life about themselves is you're never going to make it to the top. So don't make that your focus. Don't make your focus be getting to the top, being the most honored, being the best, because you'll never reach it. And he said, even if you do reach it, somebody else is going to walk in the door that's going to unseat you. Don't put your focus on everything. I'm going to have made it when I get to here. He, he's bashing that down. Now, that doesn't mean that you don't commit and work hard and work with integrity and improve and move up. All of those things are good. But when you do them, you stay humble. You set an example in character and in conduct, but you stay Humble, and you don't forget about the other people that are around you. He told him, he said, I was watching and I saw you come in and I saw that you were worried about where you were going to sit. And now let me tell you what that says about you. And again, we, we don't care what chair we sit in, but we, we measure ourselves differently in our culture. It's just the, but it's the same principles. You can look, social media can be the manifestation of us working to get the best seat. I'm the happiest. I'm the one with it most together. Right? You ever notice that on there? How does it make you feel? Further down the end of the table, doesn't it? Jesus said those who exalt themselves will be humbled. He said if you think you're at the top, you're going to re realize real quick that you're not. But those who humble themselves will be exalted. He said, don't chase the best seat, hoping that that will finally make you feel good about yourself. 
because there's always somebody else. There's always competition. Even if you make it to the top of the mountain, somebody else is coming right behind you. You can't stay there. You can't. And I, I would use this as an example. I've met uh, men that have worked in my industry. They're a lot older than me. And in their time, they were some crushers. I'm talking about smartest, sharpest, best businessmen you could ever meet. Guess what? Time started to catch up with them. Other people started coming in behind them who were also smart, also sharp, also ready to crush it. You don't keep that seat. You don't keep that spot. And so if that was your whole hope and joy and your satisfaction in life, being the one who was at the top of the list of crushers, how much does it hurt when you start to fall down that list? And it's inevitable. You're going to. Everybody does. You know, there's a reason Bill Russell doesn't still play basketball. He's too old. He was one of the best. He can't do it anymore. Other ones came along behind him. So if you put all your hope on that, that that when I've made it, then I'll feel like I should feel. He's saying you are chasing the wind. Don't chase the best seat, hoping that it'll finally make you feel good about yourself because that's exalting your self. It's a treadmill of misery because you never reach the top. Ever. And even if you were the one person that did, somebody's right behind you to knock you off. Now, again, that doesn't mean we don't do anything, but we what we do, we do in humility that life isn't about me. Life is about God and others. And that's hard for us because we really think we would like it if life were about us. People make our lives stressful. Right. How much how less stressful would our life be if all the people were gone? Much less stressful and also terrible. It would be awful if there were no people in our lives. Would it be less stressful if there were no people in it? Oh, yes. A lot less stressful. And it would also be awful. Why? Because if there were no people in my life, I couldn't even spend time with God because what God does is direct me towards other people. That's what he does, directs us to community, directs us to family. That's what he does. Now, there's only two ways for you to walk with others, walk along in life with others. One is control, where you're controlling them. You're, you're making them do what you want them to do, and so you're walking together. And then the other way that you're able to walk together with others in life is humility. Now, obviously, one of those is bad. Control is bad. Humility is what he directs us towards. Amen. And again, humility doesn't mean that you're Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh. Well, OK. I mean, I get I, whatever y'all want to do. I mean, I'm, I'm fine. I mean, that's OK. That's, don't notice me. Don't worry about I'm fine over here. That's not what it means. Humility means acknowledging that I'm not the center of all things. Right. That's God. He is the center of all things. And then I also acknowledge that he has commanded me to love others. 
and prefer others over myself, especially those who are of the household of faith. And that is not easy to do. It's very difficult to do. And matter of fact, it's humanly impossible to do it well, to love God and to love others. That's why we need him. He goes on to tell them in verse 12 through 14, he turned to the host and he says, when you put out a luncheon or a banquet, he said, don't invite your friends, your brothers, your relatives and your rich neighbors for they'll invite you back and that will be your only reward. Instead, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame and the blind. Then at the resurrection of the righteous, God will reward you for inviting those who could not repay you. And he's saying, if you only love those who love you back, what are you doing? If you only do for those that will then owe you a favor that you'll benefit from, what are you doing? You're, You're not being charitable. You're not being loving. What good is that? He's calling us to love who? Those who need a lot of grace, a lot of help, a lot of care. And again, that's impossible. It's impossible for you to do it for the most part at all. It's very impossible. I don't think it can be very impossible. It's impossible for you to do it well. Right. And we feel that when we start talking about stuff like this, we think about all the situations in our life that that he's leading us into. And we get overwhelmed by it because we feel like we have to save the world all of a sudden. Oh, my God. I mean, what about. But we don't have to save the world on our own. We don't. We just have to love and listen to the one who actually came to save the world. Love him, spend time with him, and then he gives us the ability to love others, to listen, to comfort, to care, to help, and to ease burdens. Ease burdens, brighten days, love your neighbor. And we go back to the story of the Good Samaritan, right? When he said, who is my neighbor? What was Jesus' answer? Whoever's in front of you. The person who's in your path, who's in need, who can offer you nothing, but they are in need. The Pharisees were almost done. The Pharisees were walking into the room wondering, who is going to serve me? I'm here to be served. Who in here will serve me? And Jesus walks in. Who in here can I serve? Who in here can I help? And you see the vast difference there because he calls us to walk into a room like he did and not like they did. And again, why did the Pharisees feel that drive to live the way that they lived, to want to put themselves at the top, to even position themselves as better than they knew in their heart that they actually were? And and we do that, too. And we've seen that in our own life. Because we we don't in ourselves feel accepted, right? We we never have. We we never will. Even if we are accepted in multiple groups or lauded by multiple, uh, you know, segments of the population, we never feel truly accepted, right? Because we know us on the inside. We know us inside and out and we never feel accepted. so, So we keep on pressing, trying to get that acceptance, We never feel good enough, so we keep on working, 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 lying to ourselves 
and telling ourselves that when I make it, then I'll feel it. And we never, ever get there. They were never getting there. And they were doing all of the rules that you can't even imagine they were following. And they were doing them pretty well. But look what it did to their heart. The reality of the situation is that we already we are already accepted in Christ. We don't have to work for that acceptance. We don't have to work for him to love us. He's not looking forward to when we get our stuff together, then he can finally love us. He's not looking at us saying, yeah, man, that Kemper, he's really going to be something special in about 10 more years. I'm just ready for him to get there. He's not saying that. He's not looking forward to a future version of you so he can love them more. He will not love you more in 10 years than he loves you right now. He will not accept you more in 10 years than he does right now because he's already given you in Christ everything. And so why are we working trying to get something that somebody else can't give us when he's already given us everything in Christ? It's not, he'll, he'll, he'll love me when I get to where I can pray better. He'll love me more when I read my Bible more. Those are better for us. We benefit greatly from prayer and reading our Bible. But we don't do it so that he will finally love us and accept us. That's not how it works with him. That's how it works with us. And that part of us is broken. And that's why he came to save us out of it. We're already accepted in him, in Christ. And so then... Being accepted, that frees us up to work without the need to be accepted. We already have it. We don't have to work for satisfaction. We already have it. We don't have to manipulate the system to try to put ourselves ahead. We're as ahead as we're ever going to be with him in our life. And so then we can work in service to him and to each other and to those who are outside. That's what he's talking about. To not get so caught up in everything that we're doing that we forget that life is about him and about people. I want to close with a reading out of Galatians chapter 6. This really was on my heart as I was uh, finishing this up. Galatians 6 and verse 1. It says, Dear brothers and sisters, if another believer is overcome by sin, you who are godly should gently... And humbly help that person back onto the right path. And be careful not to fall into the same temptation yourself. Share each other's burdens. And in this way, obey the law of Christ. If you think you are too important to help someone, you're only fooling yourself. You are not that important. I like the New Living Translation of that. Because it's right in line with what he was saying to the Pharisees. And in verse four, pay careful attention to your own work, what you're doing, for then you'll get satisfaction of a job well done. And you won't need to compare yourself to anybody else because that hurts us pretty bad, doesn't it? He says, for we are each responsible for our own conduct. Amen. He said, bear one another's burdens. He said, if you think you're too important to help someone, surprise, you're wrong. Help them. Help them. He says, you're not that important. Pay careful attention to what you're doing. You still work. You still do a good job. But you don't look for your satisfaction in that. You don't look for your wholeness to come from that because it can never give that to you. And he says, you won't need to compare yourself 
to anybody else. You won't need to compare yourself to anyone else. Imagine, again, going back to the man as we finish up. And Andrew, if you want to go ahead and come, we'll get ready to sing, pray together, and then we'll sing as we leave. This man that comes in, he's got the physical condition that was obvious to everybody. He probably felt like he stuck out like a literal sore thumb, swollen up in the room. They're all better than me. Look, at they're at the head of the table. Those are the Pharisees, man. They're, 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 they're doing a good job at life. They've really got it together. And then here comes the Savior. And in compassion and mercy, heals the man with one touch and then reveals that the hearts of the others in the room were not where they needed to be, right? So we can feel like we're on the outside when actually we are able to walk in the deepest acceptance and satisfaction that Christ offers. And others who seem like they have it together may be further outside than what we think, right? Amen. Y'all stand up with me while we pray as we get ready to go. We'll just pray over the word this morning. Hope this encourages you. Father, thank you again for Jesus, that it's in you that we find acceptance and that we find satisfaction. Forgive us for when we've tried to find it elsewhere and come up empty and lacking. Lord, forgive us for thinking that we could feel better by being better on our own. And thank you for showing us the gracious truth that we need you in every aspect of our life. That our satisfaction comes from knowing Christ and being united with him in his sacrifice, in our baptism, being united with him and having that communion with you. And it's in that satisfaction and it's in the peace of heart that comes from knowing you that we can do all things. I thank you that you're growing us, that as we commit and as we pursue you and as we're disciplined, we're going to see growth in our lives. We're going to see improvement. But Father, as we do, I thank you that we won't look to ourselves like we did something good, but that we only had access to the best of the best. And we'll glorify you. And I thank you, Lord, that we'll be fine taking the humble seat at the table, knowing that the seat at the top doesn't sit any different than the seat at the bottom. The house at the top of the hill doesn't sit any different than the house at the bottom of the hill. Lord, I thank you that we will see life clearly and we won't be deceived by the riches and the comforts of this world. If you bring comfort, bless the name of the Lord. But Father, that we know that we don't have to have that to be satisfied. And if we had all of it and didn't have you, we would be most pitiful. I thank you for revealing to us what life is really about. I thank you that as we sit, just like the man with dropsy, in your presence, but not worthy of being there, you still have accepted us. You touch us. You heal us. And you make us well. And you send us on our way. And I thank you that you go with us as we go, as we leave today. I thank you that we leave in peace and unity together with one another. God, protect us. Keep us safe. Relieve us of this virus. Lord, we pray for those that aren't able to be here with us today, weakness or sickness in their body. I ask, ask for strength and healing upon them right now. I thank you that the spirit on the inside of them will strengthen them and keep them strong, even in physical weakness. And Father, lead us closer to you closer to you in our thought life and our prayer life and our relationship with the scripture that will walk closely with you that will know you more and knowing you more will love you more 
And I thank you that our eyes are open this week for opportunities to love those around us, to brighten days around us, to encourage others around us, and Lord, to ease burdens around us. And that we'll, we will not see as a nuisance what you see as the point of life. We love you. We thank you. Thank you so much for bringing us into the kingdom and letting us walk together under the banner of your name. In Jesus' name, amen.